0: So today we'll be in 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. So let's pray, or sorry, go ahead and stand up with me and let's read uh, this text. Uh, At Remedy, we stand um, to read God's word just to honor that this is not the words of man, but this is the words of God uh, written through uh, men. So 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, Paul writes this. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Let's uh, pray. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit today to strengthen our faith, to confirm your word to us, Father, that you would show us again another glimpse of your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, and that today, our, our, as, as we trust in Christ that and as we see your glory in his face, that we would be transformed to look more like him today than we were yesterday. And Lord, Father, I just pray that you would also let us hold these promises and these truths that we're going to discover today as precious, um, and that we would hold on to these truths and we would confess this confession until Jesus returns. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So today, um, our text is all about um, the effect that our belief has on our walk. So to say it this way, what we believe leads us to behave and act in a certain way. And kind of following up with that, doubt can change belief and therefore can change our actions, how we act, how we walk. And so a story that kind of comes from Greek mythology that has kind of haunted me for ever since I heard this story. I don't know why. I just constantly think about this story like on a weekly basis. It's the story of Orpheus and it gives us kind of a good uh, visual of this truth that what we believe affects how we act. So Orpheus um, was the greatest musician on earth at the time in this story. And he gets married to his bride, Eurydice. And on the same day that he gets married to his bride, while they're kind of dancing in the fields, a venomous viper comes up and bites the ankle of Eurydice in the the Greek myth, and she dies. And so the happiest day turns into the saddest day. And Orpheus, in the myth, goes into Hades, the place of death, And goes all the way down to Hades himself. And he sings a song and he plays a song for him. And because he's such a great musician, Hades actually sheds a tear and is just mystified by the beauty of the music coming from Orpheus and says, I will grant you what you request. Um, I will let Eurydice follow you up out of Hades. And if you go all the way out of Hades and you don't look back, If you just walk forward and get out of Hades, get out of the underworld, and don't look back, you can have your wife back from the dead. And so uh, Orpheus makes the trip. He's starting to go back out of death, and he starts to wonder, is Eurydice really behind me? Because she's not allowed to make any noise, and he's not allowed to look. Is she really behind me? And his wonder then slowly turns into doubt. And then right as he kind of sees the light of the, uh, you know, you know, life, right? He's getting to the mouth, the, the cave, the entrance of death. He's about to leave Hades. He can't help himself. He turns around to check if Eurydice is really with him. And as he turns, he catches a glimpse of her face, and then she fades away into death forever. Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, so this story actually reminds me of our text, because Orpheus had a statement from Hades, if you do this, this will happen. It was a truth. It was something to be believed in and believing in the statement led him to walk without looking back, right? But the second he either changes the statement or doubts and no longer believes the statement, he then looks back and uh, he doesn't rescue his wife. The reason I also really like this story is because I like to think Jesus also went down into death and brought his bride out of death, right? And he is, you know, in a way, the greater Orpheus. So in our text today, we, we find that the source of godliness and righteous conduct, righteous living, it flows, um, righteous living in the church flows from Christ himself. It flows from a confession of Of faith in Jesus. Jesus in this text is declared to be the truth and he's declared to be the mystery of godliness, of good conduct, of godly living. Another way of saying that is believing right and true doctrine about Jesus leads or should lead us to live godly lives. So our message is a confession that is both theological. It says things about Jesus. It says things about God the Father. It says things about the Spirit. But it's also missional. It's meant to be taken and spread to every tribe, every tongue, and every language on planet Earth. And so following our text, we're going to look at two points. The first point comes from verses 15 through 16, and this is the nature of the church. What is the nature of the church? And then our second kind of point that we're going to look at is that six-line confession in verse 16, and we're going to look directly at who is the Jesus that the church is called to follow. Who is the Christ, our source of godliness? So let's look at our first point. First point is this, the nature of the church. We're going to look at two things, who she belongs to, and kind of what is part of her purpose. So Paul writes this in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things So that, and I'm going to stop there, a cliffhanger. I want to point out here that in verse 14, Paul was about to give the purpose statement for the entire book of 1 Timothy. The so that, what follows the so that is the purpose of the entire book of 1 Timothy. So what are the these things from verse 14? I'm writing to you these things. What, what, what are these things? There's kind of three predominant views. It could be all of the letter, 1 Timothy. It could be what precedes it directly, so 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. Or it could be kind of the first half of the book. I believe that the best interpretation is that it's actually including the entire book of 1 Timothy. The reason is that some of the themes that he talks about in our verses today show up later on in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and they also show up in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But there is a reason, there is a particular reason why Paul puts his purpose statement right after verse 13. Look at verses 1 through 13, and you'll find the qualifications for elders and deacons, the two offices of leadership within the local church. Elders are called to have a ministry of prayer and a ministry of the word so that through God's help in the spirit, they can be actively equipping the members of Christ's church for ministry, right? For worship and for ministry. The deacons are the chief servants of the church who are supposed to meet the kind of tangible needs of the body of Christ so that the elders can continue to focus particularly on the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. And these two things are all feeding into one thing, the members being equipped to worship God and being equipped for the ministry that belongs to the saints. And so Paul places the purpose statement for 1 Timothy and also this idea of godly living right after the kind of qualifications on leadership because there's a general truth that rings true most places. It's more of a proverb. It's generally true that as the leaders lead, so the church goes. The leaders reflect the membership and vice versa. And so uh, a way that you could think of that is, if you've ever seen uh, the football movie, Remember the Titans, right? There's two groups. There's, there's uh, the first time in, in the history of America, right, there are black football players and white football players, and they're brought together in a football camp, and they're trying to get over all this racial prejudice that they have of one another, and in it, everybody's just kind of, they're going out to get their own glory. We're gonna, I'm going to get mine. One of the linebackers, Julius, says, I am going to get mine. And the captain linebacker kind of retorts to him and says, that's the word. Julius replies with this general truth. Attitude reflects leadership, captain. Captain of the football team, your attitude reflects upon us. The reason our attitudes are stinky is because your leadership is stinky. Now, it's a general truth. Generally speaking, churches will absorb the attributes of their examples in leadership. And this is why Christ must and is be the head of the church. Christ must be the head of the church, not any other man or woman. Anyone else in any form or fashion of leadership must take their cues from Christ because if they don't, They're influencing the church with nothing but their own strength, but nothing their own faults and their own sinfulness, and not Christ. So verse 14 serves to let us know that what Paul is about to say is key for how individual members ought to behave in the church, the godliness required of us all, and that elders and deacons should shoulder the responsibilities that belong properly to their office to assist members in godly living. And I'm going to throw out the shameless plug We are doing two things that involve deacons and elders in this church currently. First, by January 2nd, we're nominating a slate of deacons. So out there on the wooden platform, there's a little nomination slip. You're to nominate. We're looking for six deacons, but write names down of people that you want to nominate for deacons. Um, But look at these qualifications that are listed off in these verses. And then second, in March, at our next members meeting, we are also going to be voting to install Scott Morrison as an elder. And so look at those qualifications. Get to know people, ask them if they want to be deacons, get to know Scott, and match them up with these qualifications. So let's look at the two things kind of revealed about the nature of the church. Our first thing is this, the church, you can put up A, the church is God's house, and it's God's church. The church is God's house, and it's God's church. So Paul continues, after 14 writing in 15, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so there's a couple of things that I want to look at. I want to look at the two phrases, household of God and church of the living God. So the first thing is household of God. The church is called the house of God. It is where God Himself dwells, and it is in where God Himself rules over as the father of the house. So household here literally means the house. Now we see this in Scripture at both an individual level and a corporate level. In 1 Corinthians 6:19, it tells us that our, our bodies are a temple for God. And so individually, God lives in the Christian. But secondly, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it makes it clear that God dwells in the church corporately. As we gather together, we are being as one body built up into a temple, a house of the Lord. Now, household can be referring to two things here, and I think Paul intends both. The first is, I think, the most clearest from the context. House is referring to family. So if you look at verses 4 through 5 and verse 12, you'll notice the same household word or house. It's the same Greek word used here that in the qualifications of elders and deacons, there's some house qualifications that are necessary. I'll read verses 4 through 5. A person, if he's to be qualified for an elder, he must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he manage God's church? And so house here is quite literally like a house that we live in, a family that we live with. Uh, The church is the eternal reality that each of our own temporal households points to. If we cannot manage the temporal household, how can a person even attempt to manage God's household? That's kind of the logic of the elder qualification. So our houses here should remind us our families should remind us of this glorious truth that the church is God's house. And then it works both ways. The church as God's house should also inform how we conduct ourselves in our houses with our families, with our roommates, with our friends, um, and how we welcome people in. But don't miss the, the the important truth here, which we've mentioned several times. Family. This means that Christians, those who are in Christ, are called the family of God, which means each one of you who claim to be in Christ are eternal siblings of one another, eternal brothers and sisters. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that every member of the body is indispensable. And so I want to just take this time to just kind of remind us when disagreements on matters of less importance come up amongst us in the body, we are brought together because of Jesus' common confession. We all are in Christ, and we shouldn't cast one another out because of a kind of common disagreement. Another way of saying that is we have more in common with one another because of our identity in Christ than we possibly could have in common with one another outside of Christ. Our identity with Christ makes us belong to, no- belong to one another and should be a reason for, for forgiveness, extending grace, and, and not throwing our brothers and sisters out in the cold if there's disagreements over um, things that are not as important. We have been purchased by the most valuable blood ever to grace itself upon planet Earth, the blood of Christ. So there's a second thing that household uh, can mean here. Household also conjures up this ancient biblical theme of temple and tabernacle The theme of temple tabernacle runs from Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation, where in Genesis, the the Garden of Eden is set up like the first temple. And then in Exodus, we get the tabernacle. And then later on, we get Solomon's temple. And then later on, Jesus himself claims to be the temple of God in John 2. And then later on, the church is called the temple of God. And then in Revelation, the church is affirmed to be the final temple dwelling place of God in the new heavens And the new earth. And so, household conjures up this language. So, Genesis 28, 17, I'm just going to pick from there for one example. Genesis 28, uh, 17 in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, uses the two words, oikos theu, which just means house of God, and it's the same phrase used by Paul here. And this story in Genesis 28 is the one where Jacob gets lots of really good sleep because he sleeps with a rock as his pillow and he goes to sleep, he has a dream, the heavens are opened, and there's a ladder or a stairway descending from heaven to earth, and he sees Yahweh at the top, and he sees angels ascending and descending on the ladder, and he wakes up from his dream, and he says, behold, God is here, and he names the place Bethel, which means house of God, and Jesus himself in John, if you guys remember back to John chapter 1, in 151, Jesus claims to be the better Bethel, He himself claims to be the ladder that connects God to earth when he says this in John one fifty one, truly, truly, I say to you all, you all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so this phrase of household of God reminds us of two things. We're God's family, if we're in Christ. And second, we're God's temple, where the worship of God in spirit and truth is to take place. So let's look at the the second phrase, the church of the living God. And let me read it another way. Um, And so with uh, the the of, I'm going to say the living God's church, because I think that hits a little bit more is what's going on here. The church is the living God's church. It's possessive. It's his church. We belong to God. And God here is called the living God because he himself is the author of of life and everyone who is in him is living. So Isaiah 6 is what we should think of when when we think of being the living God's church and when we gather together uh, the Bible proclaims that there he is among us that God himself is dwelling among us especially when we gather together as the church. We need to remember who it is is the God that dwells among us and so Isaiah 6 says This, the two seraphim, right, when he sees the temple of God, Isaiah does, and he sees kind of the little corner of God's robe filling the entire temple, basically stating God is too big to be dwelling in this one place. And then there's these two seraphim, each with six wings, and they're crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they have six wings because with one pair— They're covering their eyes because they dare not look at God because he's the living God. He's the holy God. With another pair, they're covering their feet, which is the place where you usually touch ground. And they dare not touch the ground. They dare not even show their feet before God because he is the holy God. And with the other pair, they're flying to make sure that they don't touch the ground. So it should be a sobering reality to know that the church is the dwelling place of the holy God. Holy, holy God. Hebrews 10.31 puts it this way. It is fearful. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is the living God's church. He's the father of this household. And perhaps the most fearful thing about our God is this. He is good. He's holy. That's the most fearful thing about God. So the church is God's house, and it's God's church, but Paul tells us something more about the church as well, and he can put up B. The church is also seen as a guardian and a confessor of the truth. So Paul continues in verse 15, "...which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness." End quote. So, the living God's church is described by Paul with the words pillar and buttress. Pillar and buttress. Buttress also can mean foundation. Um, so, what he's saying here is, is our godly conduct, right? How one ought to behave in the church has a way of firming up or holding up or even displaying the truth that the church proclaims. Another way of saying that is how we love one another how we serve one another, how we follow Christ with one another, serves to actually display the beauty of the gospel, Jesus Christ. It, it serves as a way of attracting and making people look and notice and say, the truth that they hold is a beautiful truth. And so a pillar, it holds something up, it displays something, um, and there's a couple of pillars that I think are important for us here. So there's a couple from Scripture, and then there's one from actually the historical context of Ephesus, which Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy is an elder at the church of Ephesus, so he's writing to the church of Ephesus, but particularly Timothy. So there's a couple of pillars here. The first one is this. There were pillars in the temple of Solomon. There were two pillars, and they were just decorative. They were decorative. They were not, they were not holding anything up. On the top of them, they had capitals that had little lilies that were kind of inscribed on them. And so they were very beautiful to look at, but they weren't holding the ceiling of the temple or anything like that. And uh, John, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, uses that temple imagery uh, to say something about the church in Philadelphia. He says this, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And so again, these, these pillars in the, in the temple, Solomon's original temple, were more decorative. They were more beautiful to look at. They weren't holding anything up. And so this is where we get the truth that the church's behavior, the church's love for one another, serves as a way of decorating the truth of God and making it attractive, making it appear beautiful. The second kind of pillar system that I think is important, this is uh, John Stott. Um, he reminds us that in Ephesus, you have one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was in Ephesus, and so Christians in Ephesus would have likely been obviously familiar with it, but they also would have likely passed it by day in and day out in their kind of weekly goings and comings. And so John Stott writes and describes kind of what's going on here. He says, when you think of a pillar and a foundation. Imagine the temple of Diana, or Artemis, in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had a massive, shining marble roof held with 100 strong pillars around it, each measuring over 18 meters high. And so the church being described as the temple and as the pillars that hold up the truth would actually be in contrast to this false Deity, right? This false goddess, Artemis, in whom the Ephesians have kind of put their faith on. And this actually plays a pretty critical role in the planting and growing of the church at Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, we actually see the crowds uh, turned into essentially a riot by one of the idol makers who's going against Paul. Because what was going on is Paul was having such effect with the message of Christ upon Ephesus that they were afraid that people would stop making idols and stop ordering idols and so that the the idol makers would be out of business. Their, Their way of living would be out. And so this idol maker stirred up the people and basically said, they're going to tear down the temple of Artemis. They're going to get rid of Artemis. And then the people started chanting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And Paul eventually is driven out of that place for a time. And so It's interesting to me that their chant was great is Artemis, and if you look at our text in verse 16, it starts off, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And so there's a contrasting thing. You've got the Ephesians crying out, great is Artemis, and you've got Paul in our text crying out, great is Christ. The church is supposed to contrast with the false worship of Artemis. There's a third pillar that I think is also important. God himself is described as a pillar. And it becomes one of the most poignant descriptions of God in the Old Testament, particularly in the books of Moses, in the Pentateuch, the first five books. God himself is called a pillar, and we're called to imitate him. So in the Old Testament, in Exodus, he guided the Israelites out of Egypt and around in the wilderness throughout numbers um, as well as a pillar of cloud by the day and a pillar of fire by the night. This is Exodus 13, 22, as one reference. So the church should also serve as a kind of guide to guide those to following Jesus to the promised land. So we're making firm the truth by our actions. We're holding up and displaying the truth and making it appear beautiful by our actions. And we're also guiding people to follow Jesus like we're following Jesus by our actions. And so let's look at this second truth, the second point from our text Christ Himself, our confession. He's our confession, He's our truth, and He's also our source, our spring of godliness. So Paul continues to write in verse 16 Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen. By angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The truth here is a confessional truth. It is meant to be confessed. It's meant to be believed in and confessed with our mouths. And this confession has two edges to it it has a theological edge. Those first three lines of the confession are very theological in nature, and the last line as well. And then it also has, as Robert Yarbrough points out, a missional edge. Lines four and five in particular. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. So a couple of things about the, the form of this, this poem that Paul's written, the six-line uh, poem. We don't know a lot about the form. We don't know the structure of it, how each line relates. If you look in the ESV they, their um, statement is by the indentions that this is two three-line stanzas. So there's a line followed by two other lines, and then another line, which is another stanza. So there's two stanzas, three lines. I've heard people say it's three stanzas, two lines. I've heard people say it's just six lines. I've heard people... We went through, when I was studying, and then also just trying to figure out what the form is, I think I came up with seven different variations of how this poem could quote-unquote flow together. And so all the commentators are kind of divided on this, which tells me one thing. The form of this poem actually doesn't matter that much because it's not clear. So we're going to treat it like it's six lines, and we're going to go line by line, and we're going to look at how some of the lines interrelate with each other, and we're going to treat it that way. Another thing, each line is similar in the sense that it has a verb with the same exact tense, All six lines have the same tense verb, and then they all have a preposition, which is actually the word in, but they translate in different ways in English. The only exception to the preposition is this line seen by angels. There's no preposition there for whatever reason. We don't know why. So before we dive in line by line, I want to point this out. Paul. It should interest us all that Paul mentions how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church. And they he also says the mystery of godliness. It seems like he's setting us up, right, to give us the recipe for what it looks like to live like a Christian. Like, it just seems like he's about to give us this, this, do, this list of do's and don'ts. Like, it seems like he's about to give us practice. Here's what you need to do. But instead, he gives us six statements of truth relating to Jesus. Six statements that are meant to be believed in and confessed. And so you're expecting practice, but instead you get theology, which is really interesting to me. Um, there's, a, there's a Christian rapper by the name of Shylin. I highly recommend him to you. He is uh, really, he puts a lot of theology into his lyrics, but he wrote a song called The Hypostatic Union, uh, which is a theological term, fancy-smancy term for the union of Jesus's divine nature with his human nature coming together in one person, the hypostatic union. And in this song, he starts off with one of his friends who allegedly walked up to him and said, Shy, what's, it's good with all that theology, but give us something practical. And so then he responds in the song, right? The guy's like, all right, we got enough theology. Can we get to the practice now? And Shylin responds in the song by saying, okay. And then he gives his hook and he says this, I know it's deep. When you peep, you'll find it's dense. Jesus, both God and man, 200%, fully divine, fully human, introducing the hypostatic union. And then the rest of the rap, he's just delving out about Jesus' humanity and Jesus' divinity. And the point here is that's similar to what Paul's doing here. You expect that he's going to give you this do's and don'ts, the practice, but instead he just puts Christ on full display and says, this is the Jesus that you're supposed to believe in. This is the Jesus who you're supposed to confess. This is the Jesus who is the mystery of godliness, the one that leads you to godliness. So Christ, the Christ we confess impacts the life that we live. So let's look at this line by line. The first line is this The Son of God became a man. Paul writes, He was manifested in the flesh. Uh, David Platt, uh, in one of his sermons on 1 Timothy, wrote it this way. He said, To put it another way, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. So if you have an ESV or perhaps even an NIV, um, you'll probably see after that word he in uh, verse 16 there's a little footnote and it points down to the bottom and if you follow it out it says something like this in the ESV it says some manuscripts God others which some manuscripts God others which so we have manuscripts of first Timothy that say he was manifested in the flesh we also have manuscripts that say God was manifested in the flesh and we also have manuscripts that say which was manifested in the flesh. Now, the ESV chose he or who, it's the same word in Greek, uh, because the oldest, the older, more reliable manuscripts have um, who or he, And but the, the ESV is putting that in there uh, because there are also other copies of the Bible that say God. Now, here's the point here. Regardless of what uh, it is. I think it is he because that's the most oldest reliable manuscripts that we have. We can ask ourselves this question, why would Paul start off the Christ hymn about Jesus saying he was manifested in the flesh? Every single person in this room was manifested in the flesh. That's a fancy way of saying, like, if I was like, Cave was manifested in the flesh. I'm basically just saying "Cave was born. So why would Paul put that here Unless he's trying to draw your attention to the person who was born. That this person is more significant than any other person. That this birth is more significant than any other birth. That namely, God the Son has come in the flesh. That he has become a man. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down in verse 14 of John 1, it says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 2.9 states this about Jesus. For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Romans 9.5, it says this about Jesus. To them, the Jews, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Jesus is God, and he was manifested in the flesh. Um, in the ancient church, in the, the patristic time period between kind of 100 A.D. and 600 A.D., there was a, uh, a church father by the name of Apollinaris who taught something extremely wrong about Jesus. He, he basically said that Jesus was God the Son who took on a human body, but he didn't have a human soul. So God in the bod is what I like to tell, like my high school students. Polinar said Jesus is God in the bod, uh, and the church father saw this as extremely dangerous because if Jesus didn't become fully man, how can he save mankind fully? How can he reconcile man to God if he didn't become fully man? And so Gregory Nazianzus says it this way: Whatever Jesus didn't become, he could not save. If he didn't become a man fully, he could not save us fully. And so it's significant here that God the Son is the one who is revealed in the flesh. Now, even though I think the focal point of uh, line one is his birth, this should also be read as including his entire life and ministry on earth. That he was manifest in the flesh, and then he lived in the flesh. He died in the flesh. He resurrected in the flesh. And then in line six... He ascended into glory in the flesh. So this includes his whole his whole life, but it certainly is focusing in particularly on his birth. Because one kind of uh, one kind of maybe retort or rebuke of this passage is well, where's the cross? Where's the resurrection? That's the the core of the gospel. The good news is Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection. But Paul here is including that in Jesus is manifested in the flesh. And what he's stating for us is we're focusing on his birth because in order for you to fully understand the cross and the resurrection, you have to know who it is who was crucified and who it is who was raised from the dead. We sung this a couple uh weeks ago, uh, the, the verse. Who would have dreamed or ever conceived that our or sorry, who would have dreamed and ever conceived uh I'm misreading this bad. Who would have dreamed or ever conceived that we could hold God in our hands? And then I'll add to that. Who would have dreamed or ever conceived that our sin would put nails in God's hands? In order to understand the cross for its fullness, you have to know who it is that's being crucified. It's not just some random Jewish guy named Jesus. It's God the Son who was born as a man. It's God being crucified on the cross according to his flesh, to his human nature. Uh, Acts 20, 28 tells us that God obtained, the church It says, obtained with his own blood. God does not have blood. So what is he talking about? He's talking about Christ. God the Son became a man embodied with a reasonable soul, And had human blood flowing through his veins. And it was God the Son's blood, according to his humanity, that purchased and obtained the church for God. He was manifested in the flesh. The meaning of Christmas. Let's look at line two. The Son was verified by the Spirit. Or, as Paul writes, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, this word vindicate is the Greek word for justify. It's the same word for justification. Now, Paul does not intend for us to say, Jesus was declared righteous by the Spirit. That's not what he's saying here. He means justified in a second sense, that he was justified before all of the world, a.k.a. everything that he said and did was verified and confirmed to be true. How? By the Spirit of God. Now, like verse line one, which included his birth, life, death, and resurrection, this also should be read to include all of his earthly ministry in the flesh. The Spirit verified all of it. So I'll give a couple of examples where we see the Spirit kind of show up to verify Jesus's ministry. The earliest is Luke 141, when Elizabeth, who has John the Baptist in her womb, and Mary, Who has Jesus in her womb? Mary visits Elizabeth, and it says that first, John the Baptist, as a child in the womb, danced for joy at the presence of Jesus who was in the womb of Mary. That's a crazy thought already and an amazing truth. But secondly, Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit and then proclaims something about Jesus. She basically says, along the lines of, Who are you? Who is it that the mother of my Lord would visit me? calls Jesus Lord before he's even born and it says it was because the Holy Spirit filled her the Holy Spirit already is verifying Jesus while he's in the womb John 132 tells us that when the Spirit descended like a dove at Jesus's baptism John 132 says it remained on him every thought every word every deed Jesus did he did in the power of the Holy Spirit as a man, and he did at the bidding of God the Father. If revealed in the flesh was his entire earthly life, but particularly focused on his birth, then vindicated by the Spirit encompasses his entire earthly life, but particularly focuses on the resurrection. So there's a, there's a nice New Testament parallel here in Romans 1, 3 through 3-4. Uh, Paul writes this in Romans. Concerning his son, talking about Jesus, concerning his son who was descended From David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. At Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit confirms and verifies, justifies for all that Christ's claims about himself are really true, That, namely, he is the Son of God. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Uh, Let's look at line three. Uh, He was witnessed by messengers, or he was seen by angels. The most natural reading of angels is angelic beings, the, the spiritual angelic beings that when you hear the word angel, that's normally what we think of. But the word angel in Greek literally just means messenger. And though I think he's particularly talking about explicitly angelic beings, I think he's also including human witnesses who later on are going to be messengers of his word. The reason I say that is if you look at line four, it says that he was proclaimed among the nations. And line three makes a lot of sense if it was, he was seen by messengers, he was then proclaimed among nations. It reads a lot better that way. So let's look at, uh, the. here's the way to think of it. It has a double meaning. The word for angels just means messenger. It's, uh, it's, A hinge point for the poem where the spiritual realm, angelic witnesses, is explicit, but the physical realm, human witnesses, is implied in in light of lines four and five. So where do we see angels explicitly witnessing to Christ? Where do we see that? Um, We see them at Christ's birth, announcing it to the shepherds in Luke 2. We see them ministering to Christ after his temptation by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4. We see them at Jesus' empty tomb, telling the Marys that Jesus lives. He's resurrected from the dead. This is in John 20. We see them at the ascension of Jesus in glory, telling the disciples that he will return how he left. And this is in Acts 1. And so there's angelic witness to nearly every point of the ministry of Christ, every point of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But there's also human witnesses at every point of Jesus' ministry. And we have those witnesses passed down to us in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then other lines from the New Testament. And so line three flows into line four like this Angels and mankind witnessed the gospel, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. And now in line four, they went out and they proclaimed it to the nations. The Gentiles, same word. So let's look at line four. The Son of God was proclaimed to the nations. He was proclaimed among the nations, as Paul writes. Um, nations is the same Greek word. When you see the word Gentiles in the, in the English, or if you see the word nations, it's the same word. Gentiles and nations. Um, so in Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus gives his last statement. To the church before he ascends into glory. And he says this You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus' last words in Acts actually serve as the outline for the entire book of Acts and the church's early ministry and mission. So in Acts chapters 1 through 7, we see the church's witness to Jerusalem. In Acts chapters 8 through 12, we see the church's witness in Judea in Samaria as it spreads out because they were actually, ironically, being persecuted by Paul. And so they ran away from Jerusalem. And as they were running away, they went into Samaria and Judea and they spread the gospel as they were running away from persecution. And then finally, Acts 13 through 28 details the church's witness to the ends of the earth and to the Gentiles themselves. And it ends with Paul awaiting a trial to go before Nero Caesar, the king of all the earth, where he, he was about to literally testify that Jesus was born, he lived a life, he died on a cross, and he was resurrected from the dead. Paul is waiting to go before the king of all the earth, quote unquote, he's not really the king of the earth, uh, to bear witness about Jesus. And so our confession here, it has a missional edge. It is something that is supposed to go to the ends of the earth. It's meant to be confessed before the nations of the earth, not just before other believers, but before the nations of all the earth. And so, again, let me zoom in on Acts 1.8. Hear Jesus' last six words to the church before he leaves To the ends of the earth. That's the last six words. To the ends of the earth. And that should be the heartbeat of the church. To the ends of the earth. What what should go to the ends of the earth? This confession of who Jesus is. It must go to the ends of the earth. Line five. The son of God was believed upon by the world. Paul writes, he was believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. Our confession requires a response. Jesus's life was justified and verified by the Spirit, and that message that's then sent to us requires us to respond, and the response that's required is faith. Believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus justifies us before God, and then the Spirit fills us and verifies that we are sons and daughters of God belonging to his household, his family, being made into his temple. John 3.16 highlights this response. For God to so love the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so at the heart of our confession, there is a response required. It's a confession that requires us to believe it in order for us to be saved. We must believe. But here's a second thing that I think is a good reminder and should fill us with joy at the faithfulness of God displayed. The second thing is this. He was believed upon in the world. Like, he has been believed on in the world. The, the job's not done. The task is not done. There are people on earth that don't know Christ and have not heard Christ. However, Christ has been believed on in the world by many, many nations. God has been faithful to this confession. And I, and I say this just to point out that we have that testified even in our church, our family, our church family. We have believers and have had in the past believers of Iranian, Puerto Rican, South African, Bermudan, Lumbee, Indonesian, South Korean, Russian and I know I forgot a lot of others. We've had people and have people who are believers even in Remedy Church from all those different places in the world testifying to the fact that Jesus has been believed upon in the world. And so let's look. Well, let's not forget though again. I don't want to, that that shouldn't take the edge off of what this statement is. It's not saying, "Oh, well then we have nothing else to do." We should still remember line 4 that we are to proclaim him to the nations. We're still to remember Jesus' last six words, to the ends of the earth. We can't lose our missional edge as a church. Line six, the final one. The Son of God ascended to the right hand of God in glory, or as Paul writes, he was taken up in glory. So we've reached the end of the confession. Jesus was taken up in glory. This seems to more naturally refer to his ascension, uh, this word, take up, is also used of Jesus' ascension in Acts 1, verse 2, verse 11, and verse 22, and it seems to be the most natural understanding of the line, taken up into glory, that he is fully God and fully man, and as a man, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. It gives a lot of meaning to that kind of throwaway expression if you watch sports at the end of a game. When they're interviewing, kind of, you know, the, the winning athlete or whatever, basketball, whatever it is, uh, I've heard this a lot. They'll say, I'd like to think the man upstairs. That's usually just a garbage line for, I have no clue what I'm talking about. But it gives so much more significance to that line because there really is a man upstairs. God the Son became a man and ascended as a man to the right hand of God the Father. And even now, he's seated there making intercession on our behalf. Now, there seemingly is a problem. In line six, it seems to just wreck the kind of chronological flow of the text. It seems like everything's in in time order. It's in chronological order. You've got Jesus was born, he lived a life, and during that life, he was vindicated by the Spirit, and during that life, he was seen by angels. And then after he was... Ascended, messengers went out and proclaimed it to the nations. He was believed on in the world, but then you get line six, and it's like taken up into glory. Wait a minute, didn't the proclamation and the belief happen after Jesus's earthly ministry? Is it referring to belief that happened during, or is it referring to after? Why? Why is there? Why is taken up in glory put at the end? It seems like it would fit better at the end of line two, or maybe even line three but not line five. So why does Paul put this at line six in the confession? So verses 14 through 16, kind of the first part of 16, are all about Paul's concern for the church's conduct and godly living. In a word, godliness. And then there's this Christological statement, this statement's about Christ. And so in this passage, you have Christ and the church kind of brought together. And so my theory is that Paul puts this at line six because not only is the, obviously the ascension of Christ important, but it's particularly important to the church. It's, what, it's kind of the capstone that establishes the church, but it's also the promise that if the church continues in this confession of faith, that one day, too, we will be taken up in glory Robert Yarborough, uh, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, says it this way, while his reference here is undoubtedly Christological, meaning focusing on Christ, it is not without ecclesial or church implications. It is fitting as a climactic descriptor of his work to establish the church. And so he puts it at the end to remind us that Christ's finished work has established the church, but also that's a promise for the future of the church. Paul writes this in Philippians 3 to remind us of this truth. Verses 20 through 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Jesus is glorification, him being taken up into glory, has implications for us as well. When we hold true to this confession, and we confess it before the nations, and we continue until either Christ comes or we die, we too will be able to participate in this last line, taken up into glory. We too will have a glorious body like him, like Christ, our Savior. So let's conclude with another song, another hymn um, from psalms about Christ. And this psalm in particular seems to highlight taken up into glory. And so we're going to end quoting Psalm 24, 7 through 10, which is all about being taken up into glory, Jesus being taken up into glory. Verse 7 says this, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in, who is this King of Glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of Glory may come in. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of Glory. Let's pray. Father, um, just a, I am amazed that you have chosen to reveal. Christ to your people, and that you have given us uh, a glimpse of you in his face, and that you have made the church a faithful witness from Jesus's ascension even till now. And I know that the church will continue to faithfully bear witness about Christ until your return. And so we just pray, Lord, that each of us today, you would strengthen our faith, that you would strengthen our belief about who Jesus is, that you would clarify our thinking, that we would think rightly about Jesus and we would believe rightly about Jesus, and that, Lord, our faith would spring over into obedience. Our faith would spring out into godliness, into how we ought to behave in the living God's church. Uh, I pray these things today, Lord, and as we gather, um, let us worship you in spirit and truth. As we hear your words, proclaim your words, sing your words, and pray your words, Lord, be worshiped and be glorified by us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.